Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Most of the attention this election season has been focused on the presidential campaign, but there are also a significant number of New York State Senate races in play. Democrats need just two more seats to gain a supermajority that could potentially override any vetoes of legislation issued by Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Democrats hold 40 seats in the 63-member Senate chamber. In 2018, they decisively took the Senate from the Republicans after a century of nearly continuous GOP control. If Democrats can win just two more seats in November, they would gain a veto-proof majority. The state assembly already has more than enough Democrats to launch an override vote. Senator Michael Gianaris, who is leading the campaign efforts by Senate Democrats, says a veto-proof majority would strengthen the hand of Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins during budget negotiations with Cuomo, where many other major policy matters are also decided. It helps whether or not we end up overriding any vetoes. The fact that we might be able to will affect the outcome. Democrats in the legislature have differed from Cuomo on some key issues, including taxing the wealthy and giving more money to poorer school districts. Bruce Jory, a Democratic political consultant who's not working on any of the Senate races this year, agrees that just the threat of an override vote can be enough. He says no governor wants to see their vetoes overridden. It's a sign of political weakness. It's interpreted that way. So it changes the calculation. There are a number of factors in the Democrats' favor this year that could lead to that supermajority. Republicans currently hold just 20 seats. Ten veteran GOP senators decided not to seek re-election rather than continue to be in the chamber's minority party. And some of those open seats are in districts where demographics are changing to favor Democrats. Jory says one of the key demographics in determining races is suburban independent voters, particularly women. Polls show them turning away from President Donald Trump and favoring Democratic candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden. Their vote for president could affect how they vote in down-ballot races. If gender gap turns into gender gulch and they carry that predisposition into the local races, that's going to make a huge difference. Republican candidates for Senate seats still have some elements in their favor, though. Democratic candidates running upstate and on Long Island can be viewed by some voters as leaning too far to the left and catering too heavily to the needs of New York City. There are also many staunch Trump supporters in the state who would likely also vote for Republicans in local races. Senate GOP minority leader Robert Ort says Republicans have a good chance of picking up seats in Long Island and the lower Hudson Valley, where first-term Democrats are defending seats that were previously long held by Republicans. And he says two upstate seats in Syracuse and Buffalo with strong Republican constituencies are likely to remain in the GOP column. They're running on a supermajority, and I think that that's the last thing people want, is a supermajority of one-party control across the state of New York. Political consultant Jory cautions that if Democrats gain the two additional seats, overriding the governor, if it comes to that, might not be that simple. 
He says the Democratic candidates running for some of the open seats in former Republican-held districts are more moderate than some of the left-leaning Democrats elected in 2018. But just because you have a majority, uh, a veto-proof majority, doesn't mean you can actually override the veto. Gianaris says the Senate Democratic Conference already includes some moderate Democrats, so he does not foresee any problems. Our conference is already diverse and has been remarkably unified, and I would expect that to continue. So far, Governor Cuomo does not seem worried by Democrats winning more seats in the Senate. Cuomo, who in the past has been criticized for not doing enough to help Democratic candidates for Senate, has this year appeared virtually at nine fundraisers for Democrats. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. Alan, our Karen DeWitt reporting this week about New York State's Senate and the election coming up. They're two seats away from a supermajority. The lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, this week said she thought they'd pick up seats in the Senate. Do you see the supermajority happening? Well, David, it makes a lot of sense. You, New York is extremely blue. And when people come in to vote, quite frequently, especially people who haven't really voted in great numbers before, they're going to go down the line of their party. So in a presidential election like this, in New York especially, that's good news for the Democrats. And they could well take this supermajority. Whether or not they have proven that they deserve it yet, I don't know. All I know is that for years, the New York State Senate was constitutionally Republican, meaning that they would arrange to gerrymander in such a way as they couldn't lose in certain districts, and therefore they won. And then finally, there wasn't enough population to shift around to make sure that happened. The Democrats took control. So now we'll have another opportunity for the Democrats to alter the voting districts, maybe with the help of some judges, maybe not, and that would put them in a good spot. I don't know whether they'll have a supermajority, but I don't look to the point where the Republicans will take the state Senate again. Yeah, and what does that mean for the Republican Party? It means they don't have the power of warm spit. Uh, We all know it. We all know that the Republicans um, in New York are desperately floundering. And this is not a time uh, when it's going to be easy for them, especially in this presidential year. And I suspect that, you know, they they have the power to come back. If the Democrats misbehave, then the Republicans clearly will uh, have a shot. We saw the election of George Pataki against a very popular governor. It was a Republican year. Take over from Mario Cuomo. Even in blue state New York, in blue state Massachusetts, where I live, Governor Baker is very popular right now. And so it isn't as if Democratic voters and marginal voters and people in the middle won't go for Republicans. If the Democrats misbehave, you'll see it happen again. You spoke with Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, NYPERG, about voting and voter reform. He's certainly excited about the energy he sees not only among New Yorkers in general, where we're seeing long lines this week in early voting, some cases an hour, hour and a half wait to get into early vote. And he was particularly pleased with what he sees as energy among young people, traditionally a group we don't see a lot of voting from. Well, that's right, David. And when young people vote, they are going to have a tremendous effect on the way in which this country's politics go. You know, Blair Horner is a brilliant political analyst, and I think he had it right. 
I know that our friend Joe Donahue asked his class, and 23 out of 25 uh, people in the class said, and I emphasize said, that they had already voted. I know I spoke with you, uh, and you said that in your class it wasn't quite that pronounced and that some people were saying it doesn't matter. Well, if it ever mattered and if people come to the conclusion that it does matter, you're going to get a lot of young people out there, and apparently that's happening. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now is New York's Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Lieutenant Governor Hochul, thanks so much for joining us on this week's Legislative Gazette. Thanks for having me back on the show. So great to have you on the show. Of course, we're in the midst of early voting in New York. People are streaming into those voting booths to make their choices for a variety of races, including the presidential race. I know, of course, you're out encouraging people to do so. Well, actually, I've waited in a line for a little while. Uh, I went out to a place in Buffalo in the it was raining out, and I waited for a while, but I realized I had to get back to some interviews. So I didn't stay, but I had a chance to talk to the people in line who were very enthusiastic about uh, even standing there. And the weather wasn't great, but I think there was such an energy and excitement and people feeling such a sense of pride that they are there and they have a chance to make sure their voices are heard and their vote is counted on Election Day or even prior to that. So I think it's going to be great, and i am be heading off to – Syracuse in a couple of hours to encourage early voting there. I was just in Rochester yesterday. So my responsibility is to make sure that everyone knows it's available. Uh, certainly you can vote on Election Day. It's your normal polling place. But this is a unique opportunity to go somewhere that's not necessarily your usual place because there's a countywide database that will have your name in it. So it's, it's a great opportunity, and I think people are enthusiastic about it. Record numbers showing it. I mean, absolutely record numbers all across the state of New York. Of course, there's a lot that matters uh, this year, and I know you've written an op-ed in the Albany Times Union about the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, and you're particularly encouraging women to vote this year. You know, women need to see the connection between their vote for president and who the president is, because the president has the incredible power to determine the trajectory of the Supreme Court, you know, ideologically and what kind of decisions they'll take up and what the decisions will be. And we've seen now a dramatic shift under President Trump. He had the opportunity to fill three positions, which is quite extraordinary. And now there is a court that is imbalanced. It is definitely skewed toward the conservative side of the spectrum, which if it didn't mean such, uh, which really means a lot for women. You talk about the issues that women care deeply about, reproductive freedom, making sure that the long-standing precedent set by Roe v. Wade is not hindered. And it's very concerning that new Justice uh, Coney Barrett has already expressed her views on this in her earlier writings and her decisions. And even the Health Care Act, the Affordable Care Act, which she criticized Justice Roberts for, for his decision to uphold it just a few years back when I was a member of Congress. So these are not hypothetical, you know, doomsday, scary scenarios that someone's making up. This is the reality of what we'll be facing could be just in a matter of weeks when she has the opportunity to hear to hear arguments on these really important issues that are everything to women. Women want to make sure that they do not lose their freedoms, that they were long fought for, and to see that go possibly away because of one new seat, one uh, new 
um, person on the Supreme Court is, is deeply troubling to women. Do you see the U.S. Senate flipping? And if it does so, and of course they were Democrats retain the House and Joe Biden wins the presidency, what's your sense of whether they should expand the court? I'm not going to speculate on that. That's certainly you know, the prerogative of the president to have those conversations. But uh, I do do anticipate that there will be a wave across this country. I think people are rejecting what uh, Donald Trump has done to our country, but also has done to the Republican Party. Uh, there's a lot of Republicans who've had it. They're fed up and they want to get it, push the restart button. And that'll be the opportunity for everyone to have a restart once President Trump is no longer our president. Joe Biden is in that position, and he'll do, make the best decisions for families and people across this country and not in his self-interest, which will be absolutely refreshing after what we've been through for the last three and a half, three quarters of a year. And so I think it's an opportunity for us to look at the court, but also to realize that if we can take back the Senate, if Chuck Schumer becomes the majority leader, and there are openings that will have an opportunity to have people that at least bring some balance to the court. Because right now, this could be skewed for generations, again, handing down decisions that are detrimental to LGBTQ rights, to women's rights, to workers' rights. There's a lot at stake with this, and it's a bad position to be in right now with this uh, rush through nomination and confirmation, which is absolutely appalling to see how flagrantly Mitch McConnell took the Republican Party in the Senate, took the Republicans in the Senate down a path that he thought was abhorrent just a few short years ago when the tide was turned and it was President Obama looking to fill a vacancy, you know, a vacancy that occurred over 200 days before the election, and they thought there was something wrong with filling that, and yet they have no trouble filling a vacancy and having the person sworn in within a week of a presidential election. I mean, the the audacity of this is just mind-boggling. And we have to start getting some, some people with integrity who will stand by their word and not just be so blatantly political, as we saw with Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Let's take it to the state level now. What about the state Senate? Of course, we Democrats control the state Senate, the Assembly, and the governorship with Governor Cuomo. Will the state Senate hold for the Democrats? Oh, I believe it will, and they'll be able to expand their margins. I've been out campaigning for candidates all across the state. There was a lot of pent-up demand for real progressive legislation, and I don't mean progressive in a way that people should be frightened about. This is about protecting basic rights. Progressive means that you're going to make sure that we're fighting for people's rights uh, under the LGBT community, making sure that we had gender passed, making sure that we uh, increase our minimum wage, making sure that we have paid family leave. So many initiatives that you know had been stymied by Republicans or reluctantly supported. Now we have a majority and probably an increased majority where we're going to be able to protect people's rights in the state, uh, particularly health care when we're dealing with a pandemic. And sadly, so many people who thought they had health care provided by their employer no longer do. And that's why the Affordable Care Act and our implementation of it here in the state of New York is really a matter of life and death for so many families. I mean, these are these are rights and health care privileges that the Republicans are willing to take away because they don't believe in them. And we are going to stand there and be the firewall against that, especially as we see how important it is to make sure people have access to quality health care during this pandemic. I think this really hit home so many issues like that, but also we have to continue getting funding for the state of New York from the federal government to help support our frontline workers, our health care workers, our child care workers, our teachers. And if we don't get that money out of Washington, we're going to be in real trouble here in the state of New York.
And we have a wave that's building again around the country. And we're seeing uh, anecdotally around here some cases going up. We've got Halloween this weekend. We've got Thanksgiving and warnings that we have to continue to follow the rules or this will spread even worse. You are so right about that. And I hope people aren't uh, coming down with COVID fatigue, a worse illness in some sense that people just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to do what I want. We, we cannot revert to that because anyone who wants to see a foreshadowing of what could happen again in New York that we're fighting so hard against, just turn on your television and watch the overcrowding in hospitals in places like Utah and Texas and where they're turning away people and trying to just make decisions on who's going to get care because they don't have the capacity. We in New York, under the amazing leadership of our governor, and if you just wanted to see the playbook, read the playbook on how you manage a pandemic. It was available from the very first briefing the governor gave. He laid out what happens when you listen to the experts, uh, the people, they're not driven by politics, but are driven by what's the right policy is to protect lives. And as a result, we have been very successful in driving down our infection rate, but we're not, you know, we're not spiking the football. We are saying that, you know, this is still a vulnerable time, which, as you mentioned, the holidays, families be smart around Halloween, you know, find out an alternative way for your kids to dress up, uh, wear a proper mask. Don't, don't wear double mask, whatever you do. Don't put another mask over your child's protective mask from the virus because it could be just too much for them. So let's be smart about this. And Thanksgiving, you know, that's going to be tough for people. You know, travel's going to be limited. And that's usually when you get the uh, the elders of the family, the older aunts and uncles and grandparents together. And I think everyone should just realize we have to be really smart to this just to hang on uh, through those holidays, through Christmas and Hanukkah. And, you know, we'll be each month we're closer to a vaccination. And I can guarantee that Governor Cuomo will make sure that New York State has the most robust vaccination program in the country. He has already been laser focused on this since the summer, bringing together experts who will make sure, first of all, whatever comes out of the approval process in Washington, that we double check it because we're not just going to trust what Donald Trump's administration puts out there in the marketplace for his own political gain, which is what he said he wanted to do. We're also going to make sure we have a very aggressive distribution program, prioritizing who gets it, when, and how we can really ramp up capacity. So just like our testing, no one does more testing in the country than we do. We're going to make sure that more people get vaccinated as early as possible so we can start right-setting our state to making sure that we can get our economy going on all cylinders again. So that, those, that's what we're focused on, and we need the we need the cooperation of New Yorkers just like they've been there from the very beginning, wearing the masks, washing hands, staying socially distant, avoiding unnecessary gatherings, and just hanging in there through what will be a few more tough months. But we do not want to look like those other states. We've come too far. We've suffered too much. We're not going backwards. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul of New York, a Democrat, thank you so much for spending the time with us to talk about these important issues. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it very much. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina.
Democrats have been working to win over disaffected Republicans ahead of Tuesday's presidential election, but they're not the only party looking to improve on 2016's performance. When Gary Johnson got more than 3% of the popular vote, Libertarian candidate Joe Jorgensen, on the ballot in all 50 states, says she's the right option for voters upset about the state of politics in Washington. Jorgensen says a vote for her is a vote against the deficit, international wars, and unequal criminal justice policies. Jorgensen was the party's vice presidential nominee in 1996 and has also run for Congress from South Carolina. She spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus about the coronavirus pandemic and more. If we had gotten tested in the beginning, we would have known who needed to stay home and who could have gone out and continued to work so that we wouldn't have to shut down the entire economy. And now that the entire economy is shut down, I would say, first of all, we need to open it back up. And as president, I would use the 14th Amendment to go after the states and the governors to say, hey, without due process, you can't hold people you know, under house arrest without any kind of trial. Uh, people are allowed to go to work in this country, and you can't stop them from it. So if we can get the country back to working, and by the way, with testing, so that those who are sick can stay home for a couple of weeks, we'll be in much better shape because there's still not widespread testing. No. Oh, and let me, yeah, and let me add, in the beginning, there were literally dozens of testing kits out there that could have been used. And yet, thanks to the FDA and the CDC, only two of them were um, accessible to us in the beginning. Now, uh, isn't there a middle ground here with mandating mask wearing where you can open some businesses back up? uh, You can control the size of crowds and gatherings, let the economy go on, but say, hey, everybody, wear a mask. That has been shown to control the spread. That's something small that we can do. Why don't you support that? Well, I would suggest the middle ground of, yes, allowing people to decide. So if um, if you want to choose a mask, then you can go shop at Walmart or one of the many other stores who have followed suit who require a mask regardless of the laws. And then if you don't want to, you should be allowed to go to those stores. And let me mention that gets right back to when I said that, uh, you know, we all have to vote. and We all end up under a one-size-fits-all system. This is a, a perfect example. And I would suggest that the flu from the statistics is deadlier than the coronavirus. And yet we're not shutting down the economy and we're not all wearing masks to prevent uh, 20 year olds from getting the flu. No, but with the flu, there's a vaccine. You can get it if you want to. And then, you know, you don't have to risk uh, the possibility of fatal double pneumonia from going to the grocery store. Well, first of all, I. The flu, does, the flu vaccine doesn't always work, and sometimes there are risks. But when you said going to the store and risking get, getting double pneumonia, again, if you choose to go to a store that requires masks, then you can go to those stores. Or you can have people bring your groceries to you. So there are other options other than shutting down the entire economy. I want to get to some other uh, topics with you, but one more thing on this. Um, doesn't the experience we've had with coronavirus uh, over the past uh, eight months or so, doesn't it show that we we really can't trust the average American person to do the right thing? I mean, I know you're you're saying you know let people decide and they can decide what's right for them, but in this particular case, we know that if you have a hundred people and you know ninety five of them are are doing the right thing, the other five could still spread it exponentially. 
little bit if 95 are doing the right thing and they continue to only go to stores where they wear masks, then there shouldn't be a problem. But no, they had a poll when we were starting to open back up after the first time. And this would have been around, oh, maybe late April, beginning of May. And they asked people, are we opening up too early? And something like 70% said yes. And notice there is no law saying that Walmart has to have masks. And there's this underlying hidden myth, this assumption that if government doesn't do it, if they don't require it, that it's not going to get done. And we can see with Walmart that it did get done, that Walmart saying we don't care what the laws are. You have to wear a mask to go in our store. And uh, shoppers are saying, okay. And many shoppers are saying, great, that's where I want to go shopping. And, I mean, all you have to do is look at these um, some of these places where people who are wearing masks start literally assaulting people who aren't. And what I would suggest is instead of having a one-size-fits-all where we have brawls uh, break out, how about allowing some stores to not um, require you to wear masks? And then the people who don't want to wear masks can go to those stores, and we don't have to have these fistfights breaking out. Well, that would raise a lot of questions about whether the employees are being subjected to risk, uh, you know, unfairly. But I want let's 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 move well, yeah, on to and, other- and that's up to the yeah, and that's up to the employee whether they want to quit their job and go somewhere else or stay around. That's a tough one. Um, do you wear a mask? Uh, when I'm required. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about health care. You don't support the idea of single payer or, or Medicare for all. Um, as we speak, the Supreme Court may make a key ruling on the ACA uh, with the potential that a lot of people would be left without health care afterwards. What would you like to see America's health care system look like? Yeah, well, the single payer, I'd like to point out, and this is what really upsets me, is when is, uh, people, especially on the left, say, yes, we need Medicare for all. Well, basically what they're saying is we need VA hospital for all. And the VA hospital system is a top-down monopoly that doesn't work for anyone. And I don't understand why people on the left who are so against corporate monopolies all of a sudden say, sure, let's have a federally run monopoly. And I would suggest that, first of all, it's um, harder to compete against a federal monopoly because usually they make it illegal to, such as with the post office, but secondly, this is a life or death situation. So why, why, why do we want a one-size-fits-all monopoly instead of giving us other choices? That's Libertarian presidential candidate Joe Jorgensen speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. You can hear their entire interview at wamc.org. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2044. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.